Welcome to a special episode of LA Review of Books Radio Hour in collaboration with the LARB Book Club. I'm Michelle Chihara, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here today with first, Karitha Mitchell. Karitha Mitchell is a literary historian, cultural critic, and professor of English at Ohio State University. She's the author of Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, and her edited edition of the first book-length autobiography by a formerly enslaved African-American woman, Harriet Jacobs, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, is going to be published in June. Joining us here today is also Michelle Lanier, who is a cultural scholar, museum professional, and professor at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. She is the director of 25 historic sites, properties, and museums across the state of North Carolina, including Edenton, Harriet Jacobs' birthplace. And I'm going to have them both introduce themselves here and now, but I'm really excited for this conversation. It is such an exciting honor for me to be here with Karitha Mitchell and with Michelle Lanier. First, if you could both just, I'd like you to introduce yourselves. And when you introduce yourselves, if you could tell the story of how you met each other first, that would be fantastic. All righty. My name is Karitha Mitchell. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a professor of English at Ohio State University, a visiting professor of English at Boston University for the 2023-24 academic year. And I am the person who has edited the latest edition of Harriet Jacobs' profound life story, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, originally published in 1861. So I edited Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, and I had the profound honor of getting to meet Michelle Lanier, because she and her partner in crime, Jonica Rivers, reached out to me upon seeing that I had finished the edition. And so they had this idea about convening in Edenton, North Carolina, and I jumped at the chance. And so that is when I got to meet them in person after having met them on Zoom with this fabulous idea of going to Edenton. Hello, I am Michelle Lanier, and I am the director for North Carolina Historic Sites. These are 26 museum spaces that range from mountains to sea in North Carolina. And one of those sacred spaces that I get to steward along with my colleagues is Edenton State Historic Site. And of course, Edenton was not only the birthplace of Harriet and Jacobs, but it was also the site of and witness to her first acts of resistance. I had a chance to meet Caritha Mitchell because of our curator at large of the Harriet Jacobs Project. Jonica Rivers had been following Caritha's work for quite a long time and was very excited to learn about her scholarship and the forthcoming edition of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And one of the things that Jonica and I had been saying, along with our research fellow, whose name is Kyra March, who's starting as a doctoral student at Rutgers this fall, we had all said you know, to each other how powerful it is to consider place, land, the material culture of a historic narrative as a primary source and how sacred and powerful and transformative it is to enact the process of going, going as a research praxis 
And so we invited Caritha, not knowing if she would be open to making that journey. And we were delighted when she accepted the invitation and we had an adventure together. And of course, Caritha, that adventure is uh, in some ways the topic of your essay for LA Review of Books, which is fantastic. Can you tell the story about that first walk in Edenton? Yes, thank you. So there were so many powerful moments during that weekend. It was a couple days, but I really was struck by the fact that we were walking in the road. It's a small town, so it's not too much traffic. We were walking in the road and um, there was a man who was in a motorized wheelchair who I noticed was going about his day. And then I noticed he turned around and started approaching our group. And basically he was like, what are y'all doing? (laughs) And he wanted to know what we were up to. And so we started to tell him what we were up to. We were being led around by another public historian, Charles. And at some point during the conversation, as Mr. Griffin was expressing his frustration with seeing the pillory between the courthouse and jail, during that time, Charles kept talking to the group about different questions we had. But I saw Michelle make her way over to Mr. Griffin and really address the concerns that he had raised in a way that I think no one else felt equipped to address it. And so I was half listening, half not, or actually I was listening wholeheartedly, but pretending that I wasn't listening because I was trying not to eavesdrop. And then I felt okay eavesdropping and then I didn't feel okay. Um, And I just kind of listened to that exchange and was just struck by the power of Michelle's kind of leaning in, meeting him eye to eye. And there was a captivating spirit there. There was a real regard in both directions that I just found absolutely mesmerizing. And I actually saw in that time, and I don't even know how long it took, but I saw him literally go from being frustrated at seeing that pillory to being convinced by what Michelle had presented to him about the importance of him revisiting the conversation he had had with his grandchildren. And so that is how I start the essay, because that is one of the many moments that continues to reverberate with me since that visit. I have to say that that moment also reverberates with me. Mr. Lewis Griffin um, is someone who Um, I regularly see in Edenton when I go to visit and he voiced a, a sense of pain and outrage and um, a a deep sense of, I, I think, distance from the stories of the courthouse of Edenton that was built in 1767 the jail that sits behind it, um, that was witness to the error of Nat Turner's rebellion. He was expressing a, a sense of discomfort um, that I had not heard voiced so clearly. And so while he was listening to me, um, as I invited him to see those spaces as places of resistance, as places that uh, were um, sites of determination for freedom and humanity um, of freedom seeking. While he was hearing me, I was also hearing him. And in fact, uh, that story um, 
that Caritha, that moment that Caritha witnessed, which has now become a story, is a story that has helped me to consider a question. And the question is, do, is it time for a new way of telling the story of the carceral state uh, during the colonial period in Edenton? And so that was an exchange that was certainly um, a, a, an exchange of, I think, of, of, of soul. Of, of the knowledge of the soul where, you know, I know that he's seen things, he's, he carries wisdom, um, I have a wisdom to offer. And what I, I think Caritha saw is that my number one um, priority whenever I have the, the beautiful privilege to connect with people around the history of, of North Carolina, it's important that I do so with an openness to learn something that I didn't know before as well. So just to be clear, his resistance was to be kind of confronted with the horror of some of the history that related to, to him and his people, to the history of the town. Can you say something else about wh- what you learned and what you hadn't heard before? Because I'm kind of surprised that you hadn't heard something like that before. So that space, I'll just kind of, you know, I want people to have a visual. So if you can imagine there's a waterfront, the water is breathtaking. It's, you know, water that feeds out into the Albemarle Sound. There are birds that fly over the water. There are sunsets and sunrises that change the color of the water. There's cypress swamps. There's an entire, a green field that has an alley of huge trees, sycamore trees that then lead you to this courthouse that was built before the country was even established as a nation. And it was in that courthouse that Harriet Jacobs' grandmother, she orchestrated her own freedom. And behind that courthouse is the jail that not only saw the incarceration of people who were believed to be in cahoots with Nat Turner or in solidarity with Nat Turner's rebellion, but Harriet Jacobs' own children. Her daughter at the time was, I believe, about two years old. I think the son was around six. And so her babies were in that jail with her kin who kept them safe during that time of incarceration. That incarceration happened as an attempt for the slave-owning family connected to Harriet Jacobs. They were attempting to scare her out of hiding. So this ground, this land saw her first steps. It saw her fall in love. It saw her joy and her terror. And it saw the powerful, you know, freedom story of her grandmother. So for me, these places hold a kind of, they are like talisman for me. They are containers of the story of the human experience of wholeness and a desire for autonomy. For Mr. Griffin to see a reconstructed, not original, but a reconstructed structure that was used for physical punishment of people who had been arrested, fairly or not, black and white, people were were tortured. They were abused. When we think about the racial violence that has stitched through the fabric of our country and continues to be a wound that is unhealed, 
in our nation, for him to ride by in his motorized, you know, chair, wheelchair, it's salt on the wound visually to see this structure. I had heard another perspective where people who were more interested in telling only quote unquote beautiful stories of Edenton, who were very much in who are and were very much in awe of the story of the elite white men, particularly who who hold a lot of notoriety in the history of this nation. There was a shame that those structures were inspiring and kind of excavating for, I think, you know, white elites who are more interested in a traditional colonial narrative. And so what was interesting is for me to hear a Black person who was not of the elite class say, this is painful for me for a different reason. It's not about shame. It's about that unhealed wound. And I also am surprised that I hadn't heard it voiced. But one of the reasons why I think we had not heard it voiced is that the people who share the opinion of Mr. Griffin had not been at the table of memory, at the table of commemorative power at the table of decision-making in terms of the kinds of stories that are told and that are not told about his community. And so that's why it was also a profound moment for me is because he was giving voice to a class of people who had not been heard in terms of what needed to be told and how it needed to be told in Edenton. That's amazing. And Krita, can you say a little bit more about the moment where you realized that you hadn't thought about what it would mean to visit in person? Can you say a little bit about um, what you learned about embodied presence? It's so much of what you wrote about in your essay, but um, what it meant to be there in person. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint one moment because I feel like it continues to unfold Because I'm not only a literary scholar, but also very much a performance studies scholar, I really did feel like I understood something about embodiment. And so I think for me, the beginning of the unfolding was the invitation itself. Don't you think you might want to (laughs) visit? And realizing that I hadn't even thought about visiting. And in some ways, I remember that first conversation we had, Michelle kind of shared with me that very often there is a hesitancy to come to the South because it's seen as a place of terror. And, you know, in some ways I identified with what she was saying and in other ways I didn't. I felt like I had a real connection to the South, being from Houston, having studied lynching my entire career and certainly not ever avoiding traveling there, but just not seeking out traveling besides going home to see my family. And so I feel like that's part of why it kept unfolding, because in some ways I felt like she was talking about me. And in other ways, I didn't think she was talking about me as a Black scholar who studies this but won't go to the place. (laughs) And so that's probably step one. But then I think the other part was simply 
having her guide me through the experience and the other people she convened and having the conversations that we had. Susan Inglis, for example, who I talk about in the piece, Michelle is very much in partnership with her and helped me to understand the way that they have been working in partnership over months and years. And so I think that having that context, understanding that I was walking into an ongoing project of deliberate commemoration, deliberate forms of certain levels of redress. I think that that framework that Michelle gave me for what I was walking into is part of what allowed me to think about how this might unfold for me. And I guess the other thing I might say to try to be more concrete in answering your question is to say that I think it was walking through those experiences with other women that Michelle had convened And the deliberate way that she was guiding us through the experience, I remember her giving me, for example, the sycamore, is it the sycamore tree and that bulb that was very thorny like and just kind of calling my attention not only to the beauty of the sycamore tree, but then giving me something in my hand to take home. So it was moments like that, honestly, that just made me aware and over and over again aware and aware in an unfolding way about every way that my senses had been engaged over that weekend. So that probably is the most honest I can say it. It's like I knew something about the power of embodiment, but she made me practice it in deliberate ways that actually continue to shape how I'm looking even at my yard here. Thank you, Caritha. I, I'm thinking about the power of embodiment as Caritha shares and a phrase that I use often, which is the ecosystems of witness. So particularly in the stories of Black South women, which are often erased from much of the written record. Harriet Jacobs is, of course, someone who we have just an an abundance of written record around. But that, I think, doesn't stop us from then looking for other kinds of records, other kinds of archives. If we're thinking about a retelling of or re-knowing of the spaces that she inhabited and that were there to hold her feet, there to witness her, a kind of counter-cartography. This is work that I do that that Caritha referenced my womanist cartographic approach. I'm thinking about another kind of visionary and philosopher, a woman named Michaela Harrison, who is called the Whale Whisperer. And one of the things that Michaela helps people to understand is that the ecosystem of witness of the transatlantic slave trade was and still is inhabited by these whales who for half a millennia heard and saw the slave ships that carried our ancestors. And because many of these whale species are call and response, call and response in terms of how they echolocate, how they communicate with each other, which is of course is an African diaspora tradition, they are these sonic archives of certainly their own lives, but also of our ancestors' lives. So when you hear that it sounds like a ship creaking or a it sounds like someone calling out, whether it is in resistance or, you know, 
saying, I, I surrender to the sea or I'm calling out to my creator or I'm calling out to my ancestors. And so these whales have been like this migratory, you know, archive of sound. And so Michaela Harrison sings to them and she works with scientists to document the sounds that come back to her. I think about the trees as also um, a species that is an archive. I think of the birds, of the soil, of the water. And so for me to take a seed pod from a tree that grew on the same soil that held Harriet Jacobs' baby feet, for me to take that seed pod and to put it into the hand of a Black woman scholar who has made the sacrificial journey of calling out even louder the name of Harriet Jacobs and the full arc of her story is a way that the the soil and the land and the ecosystems of witness is meeting the hand of the legacy bearer, holding the hand of the one who is holding high the name of Harriet Jacobs. I think it's important. It's a full circle, but it's also a way of us saying to Caritha, we know that the work of a Black woman writer and a scholar is treacherous work. We know that it is dangerous. We know that it actually can be deadly. And so for us to be able to say, come, we're beckoning you not only to have an intimate relationship with this land that birthed the woman who you hold in your heart, but also we see you. And if there's any kind of balm, healing balm that we can offer up to the parts of the heart that certainly are wounded from the work, then that's also a part of it. Because Caritha is also in the legacy of Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs risked her life to write. And so I asked myself as a memory keeper, what is the medicine that I carry and how can it be used? And it was clear to me in that moment that that was just one offering of of gratitude and healing and maybe food for the journey ahead for the ongoing life of these, these words and this life and this work. And there you have why it was so powerful. It is absolutely the case that I draw power and strength from Harriet Jacobs and other Black women ancestors. It is absolutely the case that I do my work because I'm familiar with what they're facing. The attacks come in different forms, but I'm familiar with what she's facing. And it was part of the reason I was so committed to doing this edition in a way that encapsulated her entire story, not just the profoundly remarkable text that she created. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl is singular, and yet is only a part of what she achieved. And to try to give honor to everything that she put forward is exactly why I undertook this project. And as Michelle says, doing that is not easy work. And it keeps you close to a lot of pain. One of the things that I was determined to do is to really honor and highlight And as Michelle is saying, like amplify (laughs) the way that Jacobs was clear about how much 
creative force it took to treat a Black woman as if she were not human, to write laws that said that she simply did not deserve rights of any kind to her body. Her clarity about the law is something that drove me. I wanted to do some kind of honor to her clarity about how violent the law is. But Michelle is right. (laughs) Doing that work takes a toll. And my entire career is about going right there and sitting there. But Michelle's invitation also came at a particular point in my life where the bomb that she's describing was life-saving and continues to be. And I think that the words she's using about saying, I see you, I'm at a point in my life where I understand how important that simple phrase is. I see what you're doing. I see the labor and I value the place it is coming from. And that is a gift that this trip gave me that keeps giving. There's a way that Harriet Jacobs' ethos has inspired connection and love and expressions of grief and even curiosity about our own inner workings and the possibilities for the future that I could never have anticipated. There are in Edenton women, African-American women, who have been involved in this project in some really profound ways, who have also had these awakenings, who have also, I believe, deepened their own sense of power by seeing Harriet Jacobs as a kind of mirror to who they are. And so those those women, I'll name them, they are part of the Fannie A. Parker Women's Club, Women and Youth Club. The Fannie A. Parker Women and Youth Club, historically African-American club, is a part of a larger national organization founded in the late 1800s, but they were founded in 1945 in Edenton. And our primary point person at the Fannie A. Parker Club is a woman named Stella Brothers. And Stella Brothers is African-American woman who grew up watching people fight for justice, participating in community uplift. She mentors children, young women, young men. They have a tradition of wearing pearls that is so They take it so seriously that sometimes the young women may have on just T-shirts, jeans, ripped jeans. She says, come as you are. You're beautiful as you are. And then she'll put a string of pearls on their neck and say, come on. And they say this beautiful oath, not to a nation, not to a creed, but to themselves. They are young women who have joined us with this Harriet Jacobs project vision of trying to understand how this portal that opens up when you take the time to think about this woman, Harriet Jacobs, there's a portal that opens up. And we are all collectively thinking about, well, what do you do with that? What do you do with that opening? How do you invite more in? You know, what is the potential of this for people to come together, for people to write, for people to be engaged in the work of seed carrying, which Of course, she writes about, it's written that Harriet Jacobs 
came back to Edenton as a free woman. That always blows my mind. She hid for seven years. She escapes by boat. And then she returns, you know, during the Civil War era as a free woman and does many things, educates people, nurses people, tends to people, writes letters, smells jessamine, Carolina jessamine. But she also carries seed to elders who did not have the capacity to plant their own crop garden because they had only been used, their labor had only been used for the the wealth of slave owners who taught them to plant cash crop only. And so imagine her carrying seeds. So I think of all of us as carrying seeds. She does not have any direct descendants. Neither of her children had children. So we are her children. She never owned her own home, even though that's the final dream that she shares at the end of incident. She never truly owned even the boarding houses that she ran all over D.C. and Cambridge and Massachusetts, where Caritha is now. She never owned those. They were not hers to own. And so we are her hearts. We are her homes. We are her children. And so uh, I get to work with professors like Melissa Stuckey at Elizabeth City State University and archaeologist Anna Agby Davies. These are all amazing African-American women scholars, historians, archaeologists, Jonica Rivers being a thought leader and a curator and someone who's deeply invested in convening and gathering people around the interfaces of the art world and historic narrative and land. We've all been beckoned. If you can think of Harry Jacobs as a site that moves across time and place, we've all been beckoned to her and we're sitting with, what do we do once we've all arrived? I don't know that we know the answer yet, but we're still listening. Absolutely. And I feel like your guidance through this process has helped me to see myself in that exact tradition and trajectory. And as you said, now that I'm in Massachusetts, like having these opportunities to connect with Jacob's New England life is part of something that I'm really, really invested in. And you're highlighting the seeds, you know, part of what I was trying to do in the addition with the timeline of her life beyond incidents, as well as the appendices, is to highlight things like that, right? Just the fact that she did so much more in the decades after incidents was published, and those seeds are part of it. Thank you so much for that. Yes, I think it's really profound what you've done. There are many people who picked up, you know, older versions of incidents, and they are left with such a profound story, but it's it's a piece of the story who don't understand, you know, this woman goes on to be an educator and an institution builder and a journalist and, you know, an orator and an aid worker in Gullah community around Savannah and Hilton Head and, you know, works along the, the likes of Charlotte Fort and Grimke and Elizabeth Keckley, all of these extraordinary people. And that her legacy continues through her daughter who's, you know, a dorm mother at Minor Hall where these amazing sororities are, are ultimately born that also continue to change the world at Howard University. And so that is where we get to, you know, I say often, we need the horrors and the hallelujahs. We don't tell the story of oppression without the story of resistance and the story of beauty and by adding in all of that lush detail, all of that nuance, 
through your intellectual rigor, you have offered up a counterbalance to some of the heaviest parts of her, her story being a survivor of sexual abuse, being someone who was not permitted to marry the love of her, you know, her, her young love, someone who did not own, a, own her own home, but then she creates a universe for us to live in. Krika, I wonder if there's a story about Harriet Jacobs that is a touchstone for you, that is anything from the, from the volume, anything you'd like to share. I can give you an example. I think of her going and getting the plates when the publisher goes out of business and getting the plates to her story and getting them herself. Is there something like that that is a touchstone for you? Wow, what a, what a beautiful question that could have so many different answers. <laughs> it is absolutely the case that I am absolutely astonished at just how much she refused to give up in not only writing the story, but also publishing it. The fact that she insisted, despite working basically a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job as a nanny and housekeeper for a rich family, like, there's no way that that's not a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. And yet she still insists upon finding time in the wee hours of the night to write and not only write, but write beautifully. I was determined to make sure that we noticed the beauty of her language. I wanted to highlight not only how the beauty of the language comes out in incidents, but also how it comes out in her letters, her personal correspondence. So making that part of the addition was really an investment of mine. But absolutely, this insistence upon getting the plates from this now bankrupted <laughs> publishing firm is such an absolutely inspirational, astonishing thing for her to have done. And I also think about the fact that not only should, does she buy the plates from them in Boston, but she manages to make sure that she sends them overseas to the UK so that they can be published there, so that her own narrative can be published there. And of course, it ends up that other people benefit from her, you know, British publication, not her so much, but her insistence upon driving as much of the action as she can. Doing that over and over again is part of the reason that she is such a light. But one of the other things that I'll admit that I am struck by, and every time I read incidents itself, I learn something new and notice something new, one of the things that having done this trip to Edenton made me notice that I hadn't before is actually that her first love, the young sweetheart that she sends away, is also a carpenter. So she highlights the fact that her father is a carpenter, her uncle is a carpenter. And I highlight in the essay that I did for a Los Angeles Review of Books for you all, I highlight how much these people are carpenters. But it wasn't until reading the narrative again that I noticed that her first love was a carpenter, too. So part of the reason that that ends up hitting me so hard is that part of what I appreciate about what Jacobs does in the way that she tells her life story is it seems to me that she highlights over and over again 
how saving her sanity and enduring everything that she endures and coming out triumphant despite everything this nation threw at her, part of how she tells the story of holding on to her sanity and her strength throughout everything she goes through is she's always highlighting the community that helped her. So it's not simply white women who are enslavers otherwise, but decide to help her anyway. It's not only those white women that she's in community with and acknowledges her communal ties to, but it's also very much her grandmother, very much her father's memory and her father's efforts and her uncle's efforts and her children and what she wants to do to save them. She's always bringing our attention to the community that bolsters her and keeps her going. And to find on that last read that the first love was also a carpenter for me was a way of her tying together how this is a nation that builds its wealth on making her sexually vulnerable to white men. And as the nation does that with its every effort and its every law, loving black men and having them love her is part of what she holds on to, to endure all of this and come out on the other side. I think that's a powerful testament to this notion that a black feminist or womanist reading is not about denigrating men. It actually allows us to be even more tender with each other in memory and in the present and the future. The idea that these black men who were a part of also not just the carpenters, but the boatmen, the boatmen that, you know, took her out to the snaky swamp, who smoked out, you know, the gnats, who helped beat water moccasin back from her, who, you know, slept in jail on her behalf, who also gave her the example of what it meant to to desire freedom so much that you would risk your life. You know, I'm thinking about her uncle who was owned by the Collins family of that family is, you know, the ancestral family of Susan Ingalls, who performs what I call a restorative and re- reparative hospitality in the presence of these horrific histories that need space and place for us to have collective gatherings and moments of, of wailing out. I'm also thinking about Caritha's place in this constellation of voices. She used the word refused. I'm thinking about the power of the concept of refusal that we hear from Sadia Hartman and from Tina Camp. I'm thinking about the beauty and the power and the profundity of Simone Lee's work. She had, you know, of course, the first Black woman to represent the United States at the Venice Biennale and under the word sovereignty, but gathering Black women thought leaders under the phrase loophole of retreat, which of course is a chapter in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, where we read about the description of the hiding place. And this idea of a loophole of retreat having multiple uses, I'm thinking about Torquase Dyson, the artist who has done in some of her three-dimensional work, she's represented the Garrett. I'm Thinking about, of course, the now ancestral scholar, Jean Fagan Yellen, who I had the opportunity to meet, I had the opportunity to work with to commemorate the bicentennial of Harriet Jacobs' birth in Edenton and where we released the Harriet Jacobs family papers. I'm thinking about Nell Painter, who cheered on the effort to reveal all of the sources 
And I remember hearing Gene Fagan Yellen say in the courthouse, that Chowan County courthouse that was witness to Harriet Jacobs' grandmother's self-orchestrated freedom. I remember Gene Fagan Yellen saying, I have given you all that I have. It is now up to you all to carry it forward. And Caritha is carrying it forward. Well, that seems like a really beautiful place to close. I just want to honor how moving it has been to hear you both talk. And really thank you for that. Is there anything else that either of you would like to add? This has been such a capacious conversation. I just want to invite the listeners, when you read Caritha's lovingly birthed new edition of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, consider doing what we have done. Consider coming. Consider putting skin to soil and feeling the presence of that ecosystem of witness that saw the birth and the freedom of Harriet Ann Jacobs. So we invite you to to join us on this journey. Thank you all. That was really beautiful. (laughs) I can't imagine that everyone won't immediately go out to get the book and go to Edenton. (laughs) I want to thank you so much again for listening to this LARB Radio Hour. This was such an amazing, dynamic conversation. If you enjoyed this conversation and you want to get books like The Amazing Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl edited by Karifa Mitchell in the mail, then please join LARB as a member at the friend level and you will continue to be able to get books like this in the mail and join these conversations with us. You should also just go out and get the book and go out and visit Edenton and become a member of LARB to support independent journalism like this. Thank you so much again for joining us. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.